Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Ruined Without Reason, Epilogue to a Health-Wealth Fiasco, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 29, 2006. In church a few Sundays ago, a nurse who had worked for 25 years as an intensive care specialist described her daily responsibilities on the boundary line between life and death. Marcia joked that when she started nursing right out of college as a 21-year-old, it never occurred to her that people died in the ICU. Her naivete was short-lived, though. When a patient dies, she unplugs the monitors, disconnects the IV, removes the tangle of wires and tubes from the person, changes the bed linens one last time, and then washes the body before the family comes to view their loved one. After the family leaves, Marcia then pulls a plastic sheet over the corpse and bags the body for final removal. A grim task and a sacred moment that even today she finds disconcerting. Twenty-five years in the ICU has made Marcia an astute observer of human nature. Many terminally ill patients and their families, she says, negotiate the passage from life to death with grace, confidence, equanimity, and a strong faith in God their Redeemer. But others become unglued. For them, the specter of death provokes feelings of bitterness, fear, denial, and hopelessness. Her observations made me wonder. When forces like death press us beyond our control, push us to the extremes of human helplessness, what happens to the faith we believe, and to our faith with which we believe? When fires purge our faith of all dross, what remains? That is the lesson of Job from the Old Testament lectionary reading this week. The patience of Job, as it is called, has passed into our vernacular as a common proverb, but I've never understood why. Between the prologue of the book of Job and the epilogue, most of the book is an acrimonious debate between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They insist that Job deserves his misfortune and therefore needs to rectify matters. But Job protests his innocence. He complains, despairs, doubts, questions, anguishes, and resigns himself to his mysterious fate. He's anything but patient in the normal sense of that word. Nor does the book of Job deal directly with broad and important philosophical questions like why the wicked prosper, why God sometimes feels silent and hidden, or why the moral calculus in our world sometimes does not seem to add up. Rather, the book of Job explores a very specific question about the relationship between piety and prosperity. Although Job never learns the origin or purpose of his ordeal, the writer narrator informs us as readers. 
In this story, Satan comes before God with a provocative accusation. We read in Job chapter 1 verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan insinuates that Job's faith has ulterior motives. Doesn't Job expect a quid pro quo of some sort, divine blessings for human faith or faithfulness? The accuser adversary, for such is the literal meaning of the word Satan in Hebrew, then makes a wager with God. He bets that he can prove that for Job, an immensely wealthy man with a wonderful family, God is nothing more than a cosmic sugar daddy. His faith in Yahweh is fueled by its benefits. God, Satan charges, is really no more than a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm to Job. If you test him and try him, if you squeeze him hard enough, Satan wagers, you'll see that Job's faith is opportunistic and egocentric rather than gratuitous and theocentric. God accepts Satan's wager and permits Job to be ruined without reason. Chapter 2, verse 3. A first wave of disasters decimates Job's extravagant wealth and kills his ten children. Then Satan ravages Job with festering boils from head to foot. To say that life hands him a dramatic reversal would be a gross understatement. But despite his impatience, his agonizing questions, and emotional outbursts, Job passes the tests with flying colors at each stage of the drama. Before his fiasco began, we read that Job was, quote, blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, chapter 1, verse 1. During the crisis, and contrary to what we might naturally think, the narrator insists that, quote, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He did not sin in what he said. Chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 10. Though ruined without reason, God tells Satan that Job still maintained his integrity. Chapter 2, verse 3. And then, after the fiasco was over, the epilogue ends with another reversal of a different sort. Whereas at the beginning of the story, Job sought the help of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, at the end of the story, God commands them to seek Job's prayers, Job's help, and Job's intercession. The three friends had wrongly charged Job with brash impiety, but God rightly charged them with what he called folly. We read in 42 verse 7, They have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The story of Job contains several important lessons. In the New Testament, James commends Job for his perseverance, James 5 verse 11. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar warn us of the dangers of trying to help or fix our friends when they suffer despite our best intentions. Even though Job wore his heart on his sleeve and fully vented his emotions, God affirmed that he spoke rightly. 
which is a reminder that there's no need to sanitize our feelings before God. Job also teaches that we should not make a direct or necessary connection between rewards and punishments in this life with a person's sin or righteousness. Encountering the majesty and mystery of God, Job confessed that he, quote, surely spoke of things I did not understand, chapter 42, verse 3. It was precisely this admission of ignorance and his embrace of modesty that led Job from second-hand knowledge about God to a direct and personal experience with him. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Chapter 42, verse 5. In addition to all of these, though, the central lesson of this ancient story includes a most contemporary application. Many television preachers and books teach that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise after you send them your money. Job categorically exposes that lie for the self-serving idolatry that it is. In his book, Forty Acres and a Goat, Will Campbell derides such teachers as, quote, electronic soul molesters. Genuine faith does not manipulate God for material gain, out of fear of punishment, or avoidance of unjust suffering. I've always appreciated how the Lutherans of the Reformation made this point. They distinguish between earthly security, securitas, a presumption that no one should expect as an entitlement or reward for faith, and what they called certitude, certitudo, the unfailing promise of God's presence, whatever comes your way. And now for further reflection. Have you ever used faith to try to gain material advantage? And if so, how? Second, how and why do life's hardships reveal our faith for what it really is? Number three, which lessons from Job speak to you most clearly and why? Number four, do you find the Lutheran distinction between security and certainty helpful? And then finally, for further reading, you might want to look at the book by Gustavo Gutierrez, the title of which is On Job, God Talk and the Suffering of the Innocent. For books this week, I review a title called Forty Acres and a Goat, a Memoir, by Will Campbell, Oxford, Mississippi, Jefferson Press, 2002, 281 pages. When he was seven years old, Will Campbell, born in 1924, decided that he would be a preacher. Ten years later, he was ordained. Then he took a pastorate at a small church in Louisiana. He writes in this memoir, quote, it just didn't work out, end quote. Nor did his stint as director of religious life at the University of Mississippi where his views on civil rights were far too radical for that time. Nor after that, his assignment with the National Council of Churches. Campbell thus found himself, quote, with a call, but no steeple, a sense of failure, doubt about himself, 
even though no doubt about his call, and what he calls, quote, a penchant for self-destruction, end quote. In this memoir, Campbell tells how he regrouped on a run-down 200-year-old farmhouse with 40 acres and a goat named Jackson. There in rural Tennessee, Campbell has flourished as a Christian anarchist and all-round rabble-rouser. He's farmed, wrote nearly 20 books, hosted a steady stream of troubled people, both famous and unknown, wrote country music, visited the sick and the prisoners, and continued his curmudgeonly protest against the principalities and the powers. If you were raised in the South as I was, have an interest in the Civil Rights Movement, or want to enjoy one of the most irreverent Christians ever to irritate the church, then read Will Campbell. He was born and raised in the rural and very poor deep South of Amite, Mississippi, ordained by family members at a local Baptist church when he was only 17, and in a delightfully improbable life, played a central role as an activist and agitator on behalf of African Americans in the Civil Rights Movement. In 1957, for example, Campbell was one of four people who escorted the nine black students who integrated Little Rock Central High School. And he was the only white person to attend the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference by the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. But he's also made nice and sipped whiskey with the KKK. In this book, for example, he recounts meeting with the Grand Dragon of North Carolina. Why? Because he believes that God's indiscriminate love embraces all of us without exception and without conditions. Will Campbell loves a good chew of tobacco, and he'll strike many people as enigmatic. Not everyone will appreciate his rapier wit. But PBS, for example, has profiled him in their documentary called God's Will. In the year 2000, President Clinton honored him with a National Endowment for the Humanities Medal, and his book, Brother to a Dragonfly, won numerous literary awards. And so, I commend Will Campbell, 40 Acres in a Goat. For film this week, I review a title called On the Outs, from the year 2004. This sad and gritty film has earned a half a dozen festival awards and nominations. It follows the tragic fates of three young women from inner city Jersey City, the ghetto. There's Suzette, a pregnant runaway teenager, Marisol, a cracked addict and young mother, and then Oz, a drug dealer. Their lives intersect after their separate paths to prison. Nearly every influence in their lives, whether personal or social, is harmful to them, including school, music, home, friends, drug and alcohol abuse, and most of all, their trash-talking gangster boys. The girls live in a malevolent universe that is parallel to anything you would consider normal. Whether they got there by bad luck, bad choices, or a heartless society that has victimized them is debatable. But the director shows his hands with several shots of the Statue of Liberty, intimating that the country has betrayed people like Suzette, Marisol, and Oz. On the Outs, 
from the year 2004. And then finally for poetry this week, we've posted a very short poem called After St. Augustine by Mary Elizabeth Coleridge. Coleridge was a British novelist and poet who lived from 1861 to 1907. I hope you enjoy these four short lines. Sunshine, let it be, or frost, storm or calm as thou shalt choose. Though thine every gift were lost, thee thyself we could not lose. After St. Augustine by Mary Elizabeth Coleridge. Thank you for joining Journey with Jesus for Sunday, October 29th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.